The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You have turned to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we'll be this evening. I'm sure you've caught on by now, but we've been going through past several months a study of 1 Timothy. We've treated it topically in various places. We've treated it what I might describe as topical textually, and we've treated it textually. We've taken full chapters and studies, and we've taken a few verses and topics from this epistle and studies, and we're going to conclude that this evening with a study which will primarily be um, found from 1 Timothy chapter 6 as far as the bulk of the foundation of the study is this evening. This epistle, as we've noted before, is addressed to the young evangelist Timothy as he remained in Ephesus per Paul's request. First Timothy 1 and verse 3 is where we find that. Primarily, he was left in Ephesus to uphold the truth, charging some that they would teach no other doctrine than that which is the gospel of Christ, that they would not give heed to fables and endless genealogies, that he would contend for the faith, waging the good warfare, and upholding the truth. This is a primary uh, epistle primarily that is for his exhortation and for his edification. But we noted several times that, of course, it pertains to all Christians and to churches. He was left in Ephesus, and we've noted some things about Ephesus. One thing additionally we might note this evening is that among many names given, the church of or the area and city of Ephesus was the market of Asia, one of the churches of Asia Minor that is addressed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is the church in Ephesus, and certainly we see that throughout uh, the New Testament as it was in Asia Minor, called the market of Asia, a place of great trade and um, selling and, and wealth. And its citizens historically are generally characterized as those of luxury, wanting the finer things of life and interested in those matters which cost money. And we remember from previous studies that it is home to the goddess Diana, where there is her temple that was magnificent and wondrous, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in fact, as we read in first or in Acts chapter 19, the temple of Diana and her worship was one of the primary centers of the wealth in Ephesus. We remember Demetrius the silversmith who made shrines of Diana in Acts 19.24. It says he brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He made a lot of money on the idolatry in Ephesus. No doubt that played into the wealth of the city, among other things. But I think that's in part why Timothy is given this instruction by Paul in chapter 6 concerning riches and those who are rich, himself being warned about the love of money and himself being encouraged to follow what Paul calls by inspiration those things that are true riches, those matters of obedience to God and laying up the spiritual treasures in heaven. And no doubt this is a topic that we need to address from time to time as those who live in such an affluent country as America. It's certainly a problem that is age old and will always be 
a threat to our spiritual well-being, that of material wealth, and we need to remember that from time to time and examine ourselves that we have the proper perspective of material things and riches and use it in the ways that are commanded and authorized by God. Note first that money in 1 Timothy chapter 6 might seem surface as a bad thing, and I think that's a misnomer throughout the world. A lot of times you hear the phrase, the money is, that money is the root of all evil. And we know that that's a misrepresentation of what we read in verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that it's necessarily the primary root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that it's the greatest root of all kinds of evil, although people might argue that it is, and their arguments may be just. But he says the love of money. We need to understand money is actually a blessing from God. It does us no good to misrepresent God's word and trying to act as if something is bad when in fact God has given it as something good. We don't need to fall into the same category as the false teachers that are addressed in chapter 4 who forbade people to marry and commanded to abstain from certain foods which God gave to be received by thanksgiving. Money is the same way. There's nothing that is inherently good in suggesting we need to refrain from wealth. And there are religions in the world that boast of asceticism and they talk about drawing closer to deity through lacking certain things and afflicting the body. And it's better to not have as much money. It's, a, it, it's better to, to have less and less. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. And those who are rich are by no means further away from God in their relationship than those who are dirt poor. Those who are dirt poor and those who are rich can both be those who have an equal relationship and standing with God in Christ. We need to acknowledge that, that money is actually a blessing from the Lord. In verse 17, the Apostle Paul notes that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. And that's in the context of riches, physical wealth. The money that we possess, whether it's a lot or whether it's not so much at all in proportion to what some other person or group has, is every bit as much a blessing from God as the food that we eat from day to day and the oxygen that we breathe and the nature about us. It's a blessing from God and he's given it to us to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with using our money and purposes of enjoyment. In fact, that's part of the reason God gave it to us, to sustain us and for us to enjoy. Ecclesiastes bears that out in truth. James 1 and verse 17 says this about every general good gift and perfect gift, that it's from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. If it's good, it comes from God. And he says in verse 17 that those riches are definitely from God. But we need to remember what the Israelites were told to remember in Deuteronomy the 8th chapter as they would go in to inherit the Canaan land and they would possess great wealth and cities of magnitude as they went in and took the promised land from God. In Deuteronomy 8 and verse 11, Moses warns, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes which I command you today. Down in verse 17, then, as you forget him, you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, 
that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. We understand that's written to Israel. That's specific to their physical promises of God, that those things they would inherit from the Canaan land come from him and not from their ability. But it is no less true for us. The things that we have as material wealth is a gift from God. One of the reasons for that is because money is a necessity. You can't get by without money. That's that's how it works. It's how it's always worked. There have been different periods of time throughout human history where certain things held more value than what they do today, and there was more trade back in the day than there is now with, with the kind of technology and economies that we have in the modern world. But certainly money has always been a key component in life. Some kind of material wealth that we need to get by. It purchases our necessities. It gives us aid physically under the sun, and it's a gift from God. In Matthew 7 and verse 9, Jesus mentioned that what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks him for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We may not be asking for bread. We may not be asking for fish, but we may be purchasing bread and fish with our money that we need and is certainly blessed to us by God. We need to learn a little more something about that, though, and consider that while it is a gift of God and it is certainly for our enjoyment and it is certainly for our necessities that we must have in order to get by in this life under the sun, that it is nevertheless something which belongs to God. We need to remember that about everything we have, including our bodies. The New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, continually bear that out in truth. That there's nothing that we truly possess of our own, except maybe we could say our spirits, but even then, that's from God. He created it, and it belongs to Him. Thus, we need to submit in our spirit to God and do His will, not our own. We don't belong to ourselves, and nothing we may have in our possession and may be legally ours And this physical life is actually ours. It belongs to God. And we always need to remember it in that way. The Apostle Paul noted that in verse 7 of our text in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That we brought nothing in this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. What is yours was not yours before. It will not be yours to take with you after. In fact, nothing truly belongs to you in a total ownership sense. But it's from God, given to us by God, and ultimately belongs to God. I want us to consider that with the words of David in First Chronicles 29 concerning the offerings that would be for the temple that he wanted to build. And God told him, no, your son Solomon will build it. Notice what he says when he considers those material things that would make up that temple. David blessed the Lord in First Chronicles 29 and verse 10 before all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, And Father, forever and ever, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are the people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. For we are the aliens and pilgrims before you and we're all our fathers, as were all our fathers, our days on earth 
or as a shadow without hope. Much like the tabernacle, the supplies for the temple would be gathered with free will offerings from the people in part. And he's saying that in spite of the fact that we are giving of our own to you for the erection of this magnificent temple that would be a place of worship and your place of dwelling, it actually comes from you anyway. And that would stand as an exhortation to the people by King David to give liberally. It's not yours in the first place. It came from God originally. It still belongs to him and it should be given back to him in a liberal fashion. And we take lessons from that as we go to our contribution that we're to give on the first day of the week and the new testament addresses it in those regards in job 1 and verse 21 we note too something that job understood he was a man of great wealth and possessions all of that was taken from him and he didn't curse god and one of the reasons is stated by him in verse 21 he said naked i came from my mother's womb and naked i shall return there He's speaking of the same thing that the Apostle Paul addressed in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7. You didn't bring anything into this world. You can't take anything out. That's exactly what Job is saying. Notice what he makes the point of in the latter part of that verse. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gave it to us. It belongs to him. And because of that, as stewards of what he has put in our possession and care, We should be careful about using it in ways that are not only authorized by him, but commanded by him. We see an example in the fifth chapter, as we alluded to in earlier lessons, as we studied through this epistle, concerning honoring true true widows, there is the condition of not having anybody to care for her. And he makes the point in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8 that if anyone does not provide for his own, And especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than than an unbeliever. Speaking of material and especially monetary things, honoring widows in that way, those who have widows in their own family, the Apostle Paul says, are charged by God to care for them financially. And those who don't are worse than an unbeliever. And so there is a command to use what God has given to us as it pertains to physical wealth in a certain way. We read in Matthew 15 about how the Pharisees, those Jewish leaders who were renowned before the people, they came up with a tradition to nullify this expectation of God to provide for your own. You need not honor your father and mother if you say that money is a gift to God. And they didn't give it to God, they just didn't give it to their parents, and that was their excuse. And so they failed to live up to God's expectation of the riches that they had stewardship over. Another example of that is one of many that we could talk about is in Romans the 13th chapter in verse 1 and in verse 6 and 7 when the Apostle Paul addresses the role of government and more specifically the role a Christian has before government that we are to submit and be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, we can understand the way a government functions and is able to carry themselves about in the work of government, whether they do it well or whether they don't do it well, in a similar fashion as we understand how we can carry out the work of God as a local congregation. We have to contribute. It takes money to do certain things. It takes money to to carry out the work of evangelism, to support a, a preacher or perhaps support an elder like First Timothy 5 suggests to 
to use funds to go out and preach the gospel and to, to buy a building as a matter of expediency together. It's the same thing with government. They need money to function. And in verse 6, we see how that money is gathered. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. One of the ways that we are stewardships of the money that stewards of the money that God has blessed us with is by paying taxes. And we should view it in that way. So often we're so uh, reluctant to give our taxes. And, and I understand that. We understand that. It's not always fun. And it's, it's no doubt that there are corrupt politicians and government can be corrupt, no doubt, at times, if not always, in certain ways. And so we're reluctant to give what we say is ours. But we need to view it as something that actually belongs to God. And he's appointed the governing authorities. And we've got to render to whom it is due. Taxes to taxes. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the things to God, render to God. If money were inherently evil, God wouldn't have given it to us. But it is a blessing from him. And we need to use it in ways that he has authorized and commanded. But there's one thing about money that is very interesting. I would suggest to you that probably the greatest thing that will manifest a person's true character is adversity. We see that throughout Scripture. We studied it this morning as it pertained to defending the hope that we have, that that's revealed in First Peter chapter 1. Our faith as being genuine when it undergoes trials and it perseveres. That reveals character when we go through trial and tribulation. Probably, in my estimation, the second greatest thing that will reveal character is money. It can reveal character that is good, but it can also reveal those who have bad character that is contrary to godliness revealed in Scripture. Money does an excellent job of that, which is why the Apostle Paul noted in this very epistle in chapter 6 and in verse 10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. When a person views money through the lens, not of contentment, and it's a blessing of God, and you are a steward of that which is God's, when they view it instead as something they love and they seek after relentlessly, it's going to reveal that they're materialistic, that they are not very spiritual in their mindset. And when a person has that kind of materialistic and unrighteous mindset, worldly mindset, they're going to follow down a path of destruction and sin and immorality. We need to understand that while money is a gift from God, God wants our love. He does not want us to turn our love to riches. In Matthew, the 19th chapter, in verse 20, we remember a story that is very familiar to us about a young, rich man. And speaking of his obedience to commands, he says, what do I still lack? I've kept all these from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus understood that the problem that is primary in his life is that his riches supersede his love for God. So Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, mature, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So Jesus said that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he gives us a graphic illustration. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But he says in verse 29 that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. It's similar to other passages 
in our New Testament where Jesus speaks about how our love for God should be so much greater than our love for even our family that it's as if we hate our mother, our father, our brother, or sister. And how much more true should that be in comparison to our money that we have? We should not love money, but love God. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, in verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, mammon meaning riches. In fact, we serve money in no way. When we start serving money, that's when our service to God wavers. Money serves us, and that's how we should always view it. It serves us in our physical life and even in our spiritual life, as we note, but we should never be those who serve it because we'll fall in love with it, and that opens up a door for Satan. The false teachers of 1 Timothy chapter 6 are a great example of how destructive the love of money can be. Not money itself, but the love of money as it reveals character and those who are worldly and materialistic go after it. In verse 3, those false teachers are introduced. It says that if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. I want us to notice especially what he says there as a conclusion of their ultimate character and why they're teaching what they teach and why they're acting how they act. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And notice how he transitions into the subject of this evening's lesson in verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, and that's when he starts talking about physical riches. The godliness of verse 6 is in contrast to the supposed godliness of verse 5, which is really just a facade of godliness, a fake godliness. They're acting like they're godly people, wanting to preach the truth, wanting to bring lost souls to Christ, but in reality, they're teaching false doctrine. They're talking about useless things like the fables we've mentioned in previous lessons and endless genealogies spending time on useless and baseless material that is not from God, and it's ultimately to lead men astray, take advantage of them, and receive their wealth. They peddle the gospel. And we see that time and time again throughout the New Testament as false teachers that are dealt with by the apostles, the apostle Paul especially, people who were peddling the gospel, twisting the gospel to their own destruction, but for their physical gain. They suppose godliness is a means of, of gain. And because they suppose godliness is a means of gain, therefore they twist the scripture to gain from those they're teaching. It says in verse 9 that they desire to be rich, and those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, which is where that false doctrine comes from, which drown men and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And those who are desiring to be rich in that way, seeking gain, love money, and the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Because they sought gain, they sought to be rich, therefore they fell in love with money. They strayed from the faith, in verse 10. They pierced themselves through with many sorrows because there's never any amount of wealth that they could ever amass that would scratch their itch. And they're in base immorality. 
Perhaps they're the same kind of false teachers as described in chapter 4 and verse 2 who speak lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They're past feeling in their conscience. That's why they can do all of these things and take advantage of preaching the gospel, ultimately preaching error to gain and gain and gain. Solomon noted the folly of seeking to escalate your riches in Ecclesiastes 2. In verse 1, he said in his heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this is also vanity. In Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 8, he gathered for himself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of provinces. And in verse 11, I looked on all the works my hands had done and the labor which I had toiled, and indeed this was all vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Money is a gift from God, but when it's taken and viewed in a way contrary to what God has described and prescribed in his will, it leads to great sorrow, it leads to a degradation of morality and spirituality, and it leads down the path to hell. So we take encouragement and instruction from wisdom. Proverbs 15 and verse 16, we're told by the Holy Spirit, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. And there comes our proper perspective. Money is a blessing from God. It's a tool from God. And so we need to view money with the prerequisite of contentment with what we have. And ultimately, that comes from a contentment in the spiritual matters, which are far greater. The Apostle Paul once again told Timothy that we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. With food and clothing, verse 8, we shall be content. In other words, the bare necessities of life that we do, of course, need, that's why they're called necessities, should be enough. We should be content with that. And it's ultimately contentment in Christ, but we should never try to gain more and more out of discontentment. There's nothing wrong with gaining more and more. There's nothing wrong with progressing in wealth, with, with laying up, for your future and providing for your family. But when we are discontent and therefore seek that amassing of wealth, it turns into the love of money where the problems come from. I want us to consider that in light of Jesus's parable from Luke chapter 12. And here's the context. There was one from the crowd that said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We don't exactly know what was going on. Maybe his brother took the inheritance and ran with it. Maybe there was not a, a fair division of things, but he's preoccupied with physical matters and he's asking the teacher of God, God himself, not about spiritual truth, but tell my brother to give me what's mine. And in verse 14, Jesus showed that this is not his work to deal in matters of physical things. Man, who made you a, me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It wasn't Jesus' focus to fix any problems in that physical situation. He didn't address whether that other brother was dishonest or covetous himself. He addressed the one who brought a complaint. You're too worried about money. And here's a parable to illustrate the danger. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, 
full this night, your soul is, will be required of you. And whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We need to have the spiritual perspective that Jesus was trying to get this brother to have. That you can worry, worry, worry all your life about your physical possessions, about your physical inheritance. But what's most important is what we talked about this morning, your spiritual inheritance. And if you haven't spent enough time worried about that and working toward that and planning for that, there's going to come a time when all that you were working for is no more. Whose is it going to be? We don't know. You don't know. Ecclesiastes talks about that. And then what do you have? Nothing. In a material world, we need to fight against the temptations of Satan and instead maintain a spiritual perspective. And we can be strengthened to do that, understanding the prophecy of the Lord that will indeed come true, just like it did in the days of Noah and the destruction of the world by water. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the work and the work, earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. doesn't matter how many digits are in the number of your bank account or your savings account. doesn't matter how your stocks are doing. doesn't matter how much goods you have laid up for the latter part of your life. It's going to be no more. And if you haven't focused on the true riches and you were discontent with what you had and that took away your focus from spiritual things, the latter end is going to be worse for us. And so we need to maintain that spiritual perspective of contentment. But notice what is paired with it in verse 6. Godliness with contentment, he says, is great gain. And we understood why in verses 7 and 8. We didn't bring anything into this world. We can't take anything out. And so we should be content with the bare necessities of life. There is, I think, a picture of godliness in one verse in Matthew 6 that we're all very familiar with. Godliness with contentment, that is. When speaking of those essential matters of life that people were worrying about, this is what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And that takes contentment. It takes a spiritual focus, but it also takes contentment with what you have, even if you think maybe you do need a little bit more. But I'm content with this. I'm going to focus on what is greater in importance, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that is his will, the spiritual matters that are more weighty in this life, that are eternal, and then God's going to take care of the rest. Don't worry about tomorrow. The worry of tomorrow is sufficient for itself. That's a picture of godliness with contentment, and to that we're called. We are content with what we have, verse 8, and what that will do is it will keep us from the consequences of verse 9 and verse 10, desiring to be rich, loving money, and falling into all kinds of sorrow and spiritual troubles. The key, however, to contentment in physical matters is a focus on spiritual matters and understanding that those things are enough. We read this in a previous lesson, I believe it was last Sunday morning, well, the Apostle Paul noted that he did not necessarily need the money the Philippians gave him, but he was happy and thankful to God for their participation, especially for the fruit that abounds to their account through their giving. Notice verse 11. He said, not that I speak in regard to need in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And he's basically saying the same thing he told Timothy to do. In verse 7 of 1 Timothy 6, 
We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. In verse 8, having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. He's saying, I'm content with the bare necessities. I'm content in all matters. But here's the point. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a reason why, as he said in Philippians 4 and verse 4, we can rejoice in the Lord always, and he emphasizes it again. Again, I will say rejoice. Because what is offered in Christ exceeds what is offered on earth. And if we understand that and we really get that point and we maintain that spiritual focus, then we can always be content and that love of money is never going to be a problem for us because we know it's perishing, we know it's fading away, and we know what is really lasting. I want us to notice, though, that he says it's great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And what he's trying to do is bring our focus on that which holds more value We read a little bit about this in the fourth chapter in verse 8 about godliness. When Paul told Timothy, as he rejected profane and idle old wives' fables, that he was to exercise himself toward godliness, and he gives this reason. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. And we noted that it's likely he's speaking of the godliness being profitable for the life that now is in his uh, defense of the the gospel and the error that is there. If you give yourself to godliness instead of these fables, you're going to be better equipped to defend the truth against these false teachers. There are other valid points to make from that general idea, but it's especially profitable for the life that is to come because of the promise of God that we trust in, which we see in verse 10 of chapter 4. Godliness is great gain because if a man lives godly, if a woman lives godly, a child of God always lives with God in their mind and simply seeks primarily and firstly to please him and lay up riches where he is in heaven, then it doesn't matter how little or how much he has on this earth. He'll have everything he ever needs and could imagine waiting for heaven or waiting for him in heaven. And that is great gain. It far exceeds any wealth on this earth. And so we maintain the spiritual perspective of contentment that God calls us to. And in that, we shift our focus from what is physical and is hindering us spiritually to what is far greater, the true riches of a spiritual nature. That requires us to see what is truly valuable. Notice what he commands those who are rich Christians. Again, riches in themselves are not inherently evil. You can be rich and get to heaven It may be more difficult, as Jesus said in Matthew 19, but one who has these perspectives by the grace of God can indeed lay up true riches that will always persist and exist. And he commands those who are rich in verse 17 not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches. Don't trust in your bank account, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Instead, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And in doing this, they store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. They realize that the true riches that are lasting and are valuable are not those matters which moth and rust destroy, Matthew 6 and verse 19, but those matters in heaven where moth nor rust can destroy, neither one of them, and thieves cannot break in and steal. And in that perspective and that understanding of what is valuable, their heart will be where their treasure is, which is in heaven. James chapter 1 and verse 11 warns the rich 
that no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers and the, it withers the grass and its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Those false teachers that are mentioned in First Timothy chapter 6, if they persisted in those pursuit of riches, would fade away with their riches. The riches will be no more, and if their life is defined by those physical riches, then they will be no more. So we've got to recognize where the true riches are. And those are the spiritual treasures that we can lay up for ourselves in heaven. This is something that the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy in. In contrast to the false teachers who suppose that godliness is a means of gain in verse 5, and then he starts talking about that on a little detail in verses 6 through 10, he picks back up with instruction to Timothy. Here's the false teachers, from them withdraw yourselves. But you, O man, verse 11, flee these things. What things? Not just the false doctrine, but flee the pursuit of riches, flee the love of money, flee the material mindset. You pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. That's your focus, Timothy. Not riches. You're not trying to preach the truth. You're not trying to, to twist the truth so that you can gain like these false teachers. You're doing it ultimately to save souls. And as we saw in chapter 4 and in verse 16, to save yourself in the process. Pursue righteousness. Pursue God's will. And you know, as we're discussing physical wealth and our perspective of it and understanding of it, those who have that right perspective, that correct perspective, and they hold the value in those things that are truly valued, they put their stock in spiritual things and not physical things, they're actually going to take their physical wealth and they're going to use it as stewards. That's what they are. It's God's wealth and they're stewards of it. And they're going to use it to his will and to their advantage laying up spiritual treasure. They're going to use their physical wealth to amass spiritual wealth. What do we mean by that? The Apostle Paul mentioned it. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works. How? Well, here's some specific things that those who have money can do. They're ready to give. They're willing to share. And in doing so, they lay up for themselves, store up for themselves the true spiritual treasures. We have some examples of that in the New Testament. In Luke, the 16th chapter, especially as Jesus just spoke the parable of the shrewd servant who, who supplied for his future in a wise way, not necessarily commending his character and his working behind the scenes in dishonesty, but just his planning ahead. He's applying this ultimately to the Pharisees who are close by who hear his speaking about this, these riches and physical things and, and they take offense to it. But notice what he said in verse 9 that would especially cause them to be put off because Pharisees were rich people. He said, I say to you, make, your, make friends for yourselves in Luke 16, 9 by unrighteous mammon that when you fail they may receive you into an everlasting home. Unrighteous mammon simply means that Physical wealth, which can lead to unrighteousness, as we saw in First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. It speaks of the same thing in Romans the 8th chapter when it speaks of Jesus being in the likeness of sinful flesh. Flesh in and of itself is not sinful, but the flesh unchecked often leads and always leads unchecked to sin. It's called sinful flesh. Unrighteous mammon, because mammon used in unrighteous ways is unrighteous. And it can lead into various evils, as we noted in First Timothy chapter 6. So in other words, he's saying make friends for yourselves by that money 
help others out with your money, be ready to share, willing to share, use your money in that way. And then when that physical money is gone, you'll be received into an everlasting home. Notice he expounds upon that in verse 10. He who is faithful in also in faithful in what is least is also uh, verse 10. Uh, let me start over. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And he's making a contrast. The riches in heaven are far greater and exceed in value far more than what is on earth and what you have. Therefore, verse 11, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, the physical wealth, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, as we noted in Matthew 6. If you can't handle the physical wealth that God has placed into your stewardship, how can we ever expect for him to give us the true riches of heaven? And so use those physical riches, he's saying, to amass spiritual riches according to God's will. Another example of that, and we go into less detail on this, is seen in 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. When we remember the Corinthians are urged by the Apostle Paul to do as the Macedonians did and their contribution for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And he noted that God is one who loves a cheerful giver and that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And he goes on to show them that the wealth that they have, the money that they have is actually a blessing by God so that they can have an abundance for every good work. In other words, use your physical wealth. Don't be stingy, but use it in a liberal way to help out these brethren in need and in their, and therefore amass for yourself spiritual treasure to reap bountifully because you've sown bountifully in the flesh. There are so many other points that we could make in regard to how we can use our money in accordance with God's will to actually accumulate spiritual wealth. But the point is this. We need to take heed of Paul's warnings in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That money is not inherently evil, but it can be used for evil. And our character as Christians should manifest a contentment that is used towards God's will with our money and our physical possessions because we're mere stewards of it. And in that way, we amass for ourselves true riches in heaven. And those are indeed eternal. Those indeed hold great value contrasted to the little value of physical things on this earth. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel, we want you to have the opportunity to do so. This is how you come into such an inheritance, how you come into such wealth of a spiritual nature. As we noted this morning, you're born again of water and the spirit, becoming a child of God and indeed an heir of the grace of life. And you can do that this evening. If you have obeyed the gospel, but you've fallen short in some sense or fashion, maybe there's something we can assist you with this evening. The invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.